All right, let's hear those pages turn. Grab God's word, open up to the book of Daniel. We're going to be in chapter 1. I'm going to be beginning in verse 5, and we'll read through verse 21. Reading through verse 21. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a paperback Bible in the pew in front of you. And if you don't own one, that's our gift to you. The word of God, the best gift in the world. Amen. Upon the conclusion of the reading of the text, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. And because we are thankful that God has given us his word, you will respond, thanks be to God. When you get to Daniel chapter 1, verse 5, say, he is alive. All right, follow along with me, beginning in verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of the time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for the four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again, Westside. We're glad that you're here. And we're continuing in our sermon series through the book of Daniel. And some of you may be asking, why Daniel? And so we've been looking over the past couple of weeks how this Old Testament book is relevant for us today. And Daniel and his friends are the people of God who are living in a strange land and a different culture. And they are people who love God, but are living in a culture that hates their God. And they are a people who love the word of God, but they are living in a culture that is telling them that they cannot live and express the word of God. I don't know if that sounds familiar or anything, but it almost doesn't seem like we're in ancient times, but in 2018. And so we're looking at how this book is relevant for us as the people of God to live in our culture today. And we're talking about not just surviving, but rather thriving. Look at what God's plan is for us in this. And we're learning about each week a, a principle that's applicable for us. Last week we talked about how there's a strategy that the world has and basically, it's to throw us off our toes. And the way they do that is to distort our identity. That's the enemy strategy is to distort your identity. If they can get you or if he can get you to believe something about yourself, that you'll behave that way. 
And this week we're going to talk about there's something that's changed in the narration of the story of Daniel. And we're going to talk about how we can live in this culture but not really be of the culture. And, and maybe this will be helpful as an introduction. Does the name Martin Hanford uh, sound familiar to you or to anybody? No, okay. He sold about 70 million books and is worth about $25 million dollars. So the odds are you actually probably have one of his books in your house. You just don't know it. Martin um, was a guy who was going to college. And as he was going to art school, he was writing for a local newspaper. And, and, and he loved drawing um, highly detailed things. And so he would draw a crowd, a really big crowd, and it would be very, very detailed. And so he was kind of getting paid on the side to do this while he went to art school. And one of the editors there said, um, you need to do something different to draw attention to how detailed these crowds are. I mean, because it would be a massive scene with buildings and everything and even someone reading a newspaper. And on that newspaper, you could even make out some of the words and the cartoons on the newspaper in the cartoon. Like, that's how detailed this stuff was. So he began to think and created a character Across the pond and everywhere else, this character is known as Wally. But here in the States, he's known as Waldo. Where's Waldo? And so to draw attention to the detail and everything, you find Waldo. Where's Waldo? He's the creator of that. And so we got a picture of what one of the books look like, right? And so Waldo's in there, and you got to find him and everything like that. What's cool is when someone asked him about why did you make Waldo kind of wear the stripes and look that way, he said, oh, you know, I, I, I needed him to stand out. But here were his exact words. I thought this was great. I gave him that look because I originally thought of the character who's lost in all those scenes. And I just imagine the reason he was lost was because he was an idiot and didn't know where he was going. (laughs) So there's your history behind Waldo. Why does Waldo do that, right? Waldo's in the crowd, but Waldo stands out of the crowd. You know there's actually a theological concept, right, about Waldo and about how him being in there but standing out. You could say it this way. Waldo is holy. Waldo's holy. Jace, what do you mean by that? Holy, holiness, that's God's stuff. Right. Because actually the word holy means to be distinct and to be separate, right? And so when in Isaiah and when they sing about God being holy, 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 what they are saying is God is separate, separate, Separate. God is distinct, distinct, distinct. He is not like his creation, but he is the creator. God is holy. And there's a verse tucked away in the book of Leviticus of all places that actually says that God's people are holy. And it says this, You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. Now, many of you maybe grew up in a background, a fundamentalist background, who thought that holiness meant perfection. So in order for you to be holy, you need to be perfect. That's not what this means. And it's not that we're holy so then God would love us. We're separate and distinct so then God will love us. 
but rather because of what God has done for us and the life that we live, it is now separate. Oh, you can't mix that up. That's profound in the implications. And this thought is carried on through the rest of the New Testament. That's what the New Testament is teaching us. That's the book of Acts. That's the church. And the apostle Peter would say this to a church, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why, Peter? Why are we holy? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, I say this all the time. When did God give the Israelites the Ten Commandments? Did he come to them and say, thou shalt not drink, cuss, or chew, or go with girls that do, and if you do that, I'll save you out of Egypt? No. He saved them out of Egypt and then said, now that I've saved you, live this way. Don't live this way and then I'll save you. But now that I've saved you, live this way. So what we see in this chapter is Daniel. He's in Babylon, but he's not in Babylon. He's kind of like Waldo, right? I just thought today that, you know, if you could do a cartoon sketch of Babylon and you had Daniel, you know, and his buddies there, they would stand out. But they would be in the crowd, but they would stand out. And this is actually God's plan to change and influence the culture. Listen, here's the jelly on the bottom shelf. Here's the big idea today, okay? You might not like what I say, but you're not going to question what I said, okay? And it's this. God uses a holy people to influence a worldly culture. That's it. God uses a holy people to influence a broken, fallen, worldly, pagan culture. Isn't it profound, right? Like the God of the universe uses you. Man, right? If I was God, I'd have thought of a better plan. You know what I'm saying, right? But like think about it. That's a part, that's what makes it so unique and profound is that his people are to be different. So so what we're going to look at in this text is what holiness, right, to be separate requires of us. What are some things that we need to apply and look at in our life? How does this work? How are we a holy people? Well, the first thing is this. Holiness requires convictions. Convictions. Look in verse 8. The narration changes, right? Have your Bible, so so I'm not making this up, right? God forbid you use your Bible in church. That would be profound, right? Look in verse 8. What's the first word in verse 8? It's okay. You can say it in church. Say it out loud. It's all right. We're just, I, I swear I'm going to do a series called The Great Butts of the Bible. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> everything changes, right? The narration has changed. Babylon has come and laid siege. Now they've got new names. Now they've got all kinds of stuff. But Daniel. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. One verse, we have the phrase, not to defile himself, twice. The phrase, Daniel resolved, is very strong in the original. It literally means that he set his heart and his mind on the task. Daniel said that he would not eat of the food. Now, it's interesting when we look at where Daniel draws the line and stands up, right? Because Babylon comes in, lays siege. They've even got new names. And we don't see in the scriptures as to why they don't even attest to the names. But the food, why why the food, right? 
So I studied this week and read page after page after commentary after commentary of guys who have more degrees in Fahrenheit. And they say that Daniel didn't eat of the food because of this dead guy said that this guy said that this guy said that back at this time, this one guy said that if you look at this one Bible verse and read it this way, that this is why. And listen, here's the deal. We don't know, right? It just doesn't tell us. Now, there's some suggestions, right? Maybe it was a dietary law. So Daniel's Jewish. That, that's an ethnicity. So maybe there was an uncleanliness of the food. He was under an Old Testament guidelines as to what to eat and what not to eat. So maybe there were some things where he said, I can't do that because God's word says here that I can't do that. So maybe it was dietary law, maybe. Maybe it was also idol worship. So back then, you got to understand, this is the king's table. There's no, like, refrigerator, and you're not looping through, you know, Taco Bell to get some drive through okay? The king's food is the best. And what they would do is they would kind of participate in some super sketchy, like, Game of Thrones stuff before they had their meal, okay? And it'd be really weird. And then whatever was left over from the idol worship, then they would eat that. So maybe Daniel was like, yo, 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 man, y'all went buck wild with that food before. I can't eat any of that stuff, Right? And then some people think that, you know, in the ancient Near East, that when you sat down at a table with someone and you ate food with them, it was the most intimate thing that you could do. That's why the Pharisees said that Jesus eats with sinners. He fellowshiped with them. And then the Apostle Paul would say in the New Testament, for someone who's left the church, right, who, who doesn't submit to authority, Paul says, don't eat with that person because that's a symbol of blessing on the relationship. Those are all suggestions, but here's something we do know. Here's what we do know. Daniel realized this principle. Obedience to God is more important than acceptance to man. Flat out. Daniel drew the line. Conviction, resolved, set his mind to. Listen, I know you're the king I know you got all this stuff, but there is a conviction that I have that I cannot surpass because obedience to God is more important than your approval. And here's what's profound about this. This is what we see all through the New Testament. This is what marks the people of God. Do you know how the book of Proverbs opens? The book of Proverbs opens with the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And listen, man, I'll lay all my cards out on the table. There are weeks where I sit in that office and I study and I'm reading and I'm writing my sermon and I just pause and I ask God, I don't want to say that. I don't want to say that because I like people. (laughs) And if I say that, people aren't going to like me. You know what I mean? And then always realize this, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. For there's appointed to man to die once, and after that he is to face judgment. And I realize this truth. You won't be at the judgment. Christ will. And I'll stand and I'll give an account for my life. And I could give a rip about if you were my Facebook friend or not in that moment, and you unfriended me or commented something in that moment. But rather that Christ would stand before me and say, did you say what I told you to say? Or did you say what you felt like saying? One of my favorite verses in the Bible about the apostles when they're standing and preaching Jesus, they beat them, they throw them in jail, and they say, you cannot do this anymore. And they respond and say, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And listen, here's a profound truth for you, and I believe that this will free some of you. 
This will free some of you because you are living in slavery at the opinions of other people. And some of you show it in the tough way, right? I don't care what nobody says about me or my family. I'm just living free. You know me. You know me. I'm just me. I'm just, and that's a self-defense thing because deep down inside, you're craving the approval of people. And when you realize that you have the approval of God, nothing else really matters anymore. But where do these convictions come from? Do we just make these up? Like, like, what do we know what to stand for and what not to stand for? So I want to be helpful for you in this moment, right? Because it's not so much, people focus on that Daniel resolved not to eat the food and the wine. That's, that's the secondary issue. The first issue is that he resolved not to defile himself. He had a conviction. So where do we get our convictions from? Hey, parents, listen, this is important for you, Right? That you need to know what's coming into our home, what's not coming into our home, what governs our home, what doesn't govern our home. What do we go when your kid asks, why do we do this? What is your response? So the first area that we get it from is the word of God, right? And listen, you can debate that all day. Well, the Bible this, and I got Google, Jason, and Wikipedia. Now, awesome, fantastic. Okay, that's great. But you know what's funny is like um, when my mom had us, Back then, like, you were never just supposed to put babies on their bellies, right, when they went to sleep. Oh, you just, oh, all the books and everything said that. And then when we had Roman, it was like lay him on his stomach, you know. And then if you have anybody going through college or going through, like, health or anything like that, this year's textbook is like, oh, sugar is bad for you. Sugar is bad. Then next year, it's like, well, pure sugar is really good for you. You know, but here's what I'm trying to say. The ebb and flow is always changing on opinions, My question to you is, what are you anchoring your life on? Because the word of God doesn't change. It's been tried, it's been tested, and it's still here. And so I get very weary when people are like, I just don't know what the will of God is for my life. And I just hold up my Bible like this. like, Right? God hasn't been silent to us. We know he's spoken as to how he wants us to live, what he wants us to stand for, the word of God. But we also get confirmation from this from the spirit of God. The spirit of God lives inside of us. And listen, the spirit of God will never contradict the word of God, and the word of God will never contradict the spirit of God. They're like fighter jets, blue angels. They fly side by side. And listen, you... People try to drop the God card in church. So, so, so in church, we have our own language that we use to trump people, Right? So when you're asked to serve, you say, I'll pray about it, which is code word for I'm not going to serve. <laughs> am I all up in your Kool-Aid? Am I not supposed to? We're not, oh, I'm not supposed to give those secrets away? I'm sorry. You know, like, oh, well, we'll we're praying about it, right? No, you're not serving. Okay, next. You know what I mean? But people will always say, I feel like God is telling me blank. And I've sat across from a table with my Bible open, pointing to the verse going, this is what God's will is for you. And people say, I know what that says, but I feel like blank. Now listen, I love you. You can eat a cupcake after this service to feel better about yourself, but I don't give a rip about your feelings, okay? Because your feelings are are just like a tree in the wind. They're going to sway with whatever blows it that direction. God's word is what anchors you. 
and our convictions stand on the Word of God, confirmed by the Spirit of God. But we don't just do this. Like First Peter says, Scripture is not for private interpretation. That's why I'm not David Koresh up here, all right? We're running a cult thing, okay? It also comes by the people of God. So listen, the church has been around for 2,000 years. Like, you know, the whole issues on sexuality, homosexuality, and everybody thinks it's a hot topic and all that stuff. Bro, we know what the church has believed on those issues for 2,000 years. Not even 100 years removed from Jesus Christ's physical life, we know what people believed, okay? So we confirm this by the people of God from the past and in the present. That's why we reach out to other people. That's why we pray with people. The word of God, the spirit of God, and the people of God is where we derive our convictions from. But holiness is going to require that you stand for something. But the second thing is this. Holiness requires that you trust God. (laughs) Because listen, I can have convictions all day long, right? Like I have a pretty profound conviction that I should probably work out, right? I mean, Planet Fitness, those are pretty good deals, man. You know what I'm saying? But when that alarm goes off, my convictions go out the window. You know what I'm saying? Having a conviction is not just it. It's following through with that conviction. And look at what Daniel does. Verse 9, this is profound. And God gave Daniel, favor and compassion in the sight of the eunuch. Now, question. When did the favor and compassion come? After Daniel stepped out in obedience. I've said this to you many, many times. Some of you have questions that will not be answered on this side of obedience. But it's not until we step out in faith and find that God has those answers to our questions. And Daniel stands for his convictions, but then he trusts God with the outcome. He's like, I don't know. Hold my breath. Calculated risk. I'm diving into this thing. And then this guy's like, man, the king has issued this decree. I'm fearful for my own head, right? Because back then, you don't just disobey the king. You get your head cut off, right? And Daniel's like, no, this is what we're going to do. And put me to the test. I love that, man. Many people in church have convictions, but not many people are willing for those convictions to be tested. That's when you find what your convictions really matter. And so listen, this statement isn't new to me. I've heard many preachers say it, but this is what you've got to understand. Obedience is your responsibility. The outcome is God's responsibility. Stop focusing on the outcome. Because listen, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is control. You can't have faith and control at the same time, bro. So when we step out in faith, what we are doing is what requires of us, and that is obedience. And Daniel steps out in obedience and trusts God with the outcome. And what's profound, what we see about this, is it actually goes really well for him, right? And I think many of us don't step out in faith because we want to know the end of the outcome, and we want to focus on that. This week, I picked Roman up from school, and A lot of times when I pick him up from school, we'll go by and I'll get him like a snack or something like that. And he'll come hang out here at the church with me for a little bit. And so we picked him up and got him a special treat that day. We got a Sprite. And so we were standing in line paying for everything. And of course, he's six years old. He's standing in line with the Sprite. And he has shaken that Sprite bottle, shook it up like, I mean, like it's a bottle rocket ready to go off or something, you know. 
So the whole time, I'm like, hey, bud, when we get in the car, don't open that. Hey, bud, when we get in the car, buckle up, don't open that. Hey, bud, we're in the car, buckle up, don't open that. Hey, buddy, don't open that. What does he do? He opens it. (laughs) But before he does it, he says this. As I'm saying, don't open that, he says this. Oh, no, Dad, I got it. I'm going to be careful, and it goes everywhere. And I said this. I don't need you to be careful. I need you to obey me. And as I turned around and drove off, I felt like God say, what would you just say to your son? Because I felt like I've been trying to say that to you for a little while, right? (laughs) Because from the mouth of babes. Listen, stop trying to be careful and just be obedient. The outcome is not your responsibility. Have convictions in your home. Have convictions in your life. Stand for the word of God. Do what you have to do at the cost of your job, at the cost of relationships, at the cost of whatever. The outcome is God's responsibility. Obedience is your responsibility. So holiness requires that you're going to have to have convictions. Holiness requires you're going to have to step out on some things and trust God. But the third thing is this. Holiness requires that you engage the culture. Now, this is like almost an oxymoron and something you don't hear taught a lot. But, but look at what happens. Look in verse 17. As for these four youth, God gave them. Again, I love it. There's a rhythm in chapter 1. God gave, God gave, God gave. God gave them learning and skill in all literature and all wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And then drop down to verse 20. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times, the original language literally says ten fingers, better than all the magicians and Harry Potter and everybody else that's in his kingdom, right? Daniel was actually better than everybody. What did Daniel do? Daniel was like Wally. He was like Waldo. He was there, but he stood out from there. Because Daniel understood this profound truth. That in order to be effective in Babylon, you got to know about Babylon. And for some reason in Christianity and the church, there's been this argument as to how we engage culture. And we're kind of conditioned for it. Everything's a bi-party system. So you're either left or you're right or you're this or you're that. And the church has sort of adopted that philosophy when it comes to engaging the culture. And many of you maybe grow, grew up in this, and there's really only three views. The first one is this, separation from culture, Right? So we're not doing anything, bad, 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 wrong, 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 no instruments, no this, no that. You better not act like you're having fun because our God's serious. So we're going to separate from everything. We're going to dress like this. We're going to do this. And we're going to entirely separate from the culture. The problem with that is, is that that mindset means that they will come to us. We don't need to come to them. And we're going to separate from them. And everything that involves in the culture is bad. But when I see the mission of God, I don't see God doing that. I don't see God separating from everything and saying, "Ah, yeah, they'll figure it out. They need to come to me and figure this thing out. But then the extreme opposite of that is saturation in the culture. So now you either go from Christians who were like completely removed, almost cults, this and that. We're not doing anything fun or engaging to attract people or do anything. And then we swing all the way over to like, man, you know what's going to be a good Easter opener in church? We're going to play Highway to Hell. We're going to love that. We're going to really reach the people, right? And then our sermon series, we're going to do Disney songs. And that'll be great, right? What do you do with a steak when you marinate it? 
right? You marinate it overnight, and then the steak starts to taste like the marinade. There's a problem with that when it comes to Scripture, that Jesus says that you're in the world, but you're not of it. So you're in it. You're not separate. You're in it. But you're not of it. You're not supposed to taste like it. You're not supposed to. You're the salt and light of the earth. So then there must be a third way, and it's to infiltrate the culture. We're in this, but we have a different mission. We're in this, but we're not of this. And, and listen, I get my theology from this from Jesus. Because look at what the Bible says. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. So what did God do? He did not fully separate from us, right? He did not fully saturate from us, but he infiltrated. Jesus put on flesh and bones. You cannot make this argument with Jesus. No one understands. No one understands my life. I've been this. Jesus understands what it is to be betrayed by a closest friend, to have your family not understand who you are, the death of a loved one. Jesus, he's infiltrated the culture. And Jesus says, it's better that I go so I can leave you Christians who would infiltrate the culture. That's why we need, like, I'm down on the phrase, like, Christian artist or Christian music. You know why? Because we don't do that with anything else. We're not like, oh, he's a Christian chef and he makes Christian food. Oh, he's a Christian plumber. He only works on Christian toilets. That's it. That's all we got. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You're separating yourself. How about you're an artist who's a Christian? Or you're a plumber who's a Christian? Or your school teacher who's a Christian? Or your police officer who's a Christian? Or your city councilman? That's why we infiltrate the culture. We go everywhere. We do everything. That, listen, Westside, that's how we'll infiltrate Popper Bluff. We don't separate from it. We don't saturate in it, but we infiltrate that. We need to be in school systems. We need to sit on city council. We need to do all of these things. But what do we do when we engage it? Are there guidelines and parameters for us? Parents, what determines, like, if your kid brings home some music or to watch a movie or to stay the night at someone's house or to do something like that? What determines that? Because, listen, if you're trying to figure out your convictions while your kid's asking you, you've already lost, okay? And listen, word of advice to the parents and grandparents in here. How about we stop degrading our kids and talk about how bad the culture is and do all that stuff, and we're like fuddy-duds who look like we've been baptized in lemon juice and we're mad about it all the time? What if you actually got to know your kid's culture? That's profound, right? What if you read the books they read and got to know your kids? I know I'm out on a limb here, and this is kind of crazy, right? But what would determine how we do that? There's three questions that that have shaped me from another pastor who taught me this. And this is something we use for our family to determine this. Courtney and I use this when we watch movies, when Roman asks us questions. This is what determines these type of things. The first one is this. Do I receive this gladly? Gladly, right? So one of the things we try to do, like like if we go eat ice cream or candy, right, or sugar or something like that, you know, I'll ask the kids, why is this good? You know, and Andy Grace is the theologian among us. She'll go, because of the sugar, right? <laughs> Profound, right? That's absolutely right. But how can we taste the sugar? 
Well, God created us. And God gave us taste buds so that we could taste good things. And that when we tasted the good things, we would be reminded that God created us. And that we would be reminded that he created us because he's good. And so we taste this good food as an example for God to let us know, I'm good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. There are things in the culture that we can gladly receive into our homes. We don't even need to pray about these things. But the second thing is this, do I reject this? Now, there are things that, listen, listen, newsflash, you ain't even got to pray about it, bro. Things that are degrading, things that are blatantly contrast to the word of God. Like, listen, like, uh, example, off the top, right? Fifty Shades of Grey, that's pornography, that's trash, you need to burn that book. Any questions? You can send me an email later, I ain't going to read it, that's fine. Right? And then what you're going to do is you're going to condition, you're going to let that stuff in, your kids, you're not monitoring what your kids are watching or anything like that. Right, because your, your kid doesn't need a friend. He needs a parent. No amens. All right, I didn't get amens on the first servant on that either. That's all right. But what you're going to do is you're going to like go watch The Hangover 2 with your kids, and you're going to allow all this stuff to come into your home. Then you're going to make an appointment with me, and we're going to sit in my office in the chair, and you're going to do this. Well, I just don't know what's going on with my kids, Jason. Talk to them. Talk to them. Because you have not rejected what we should outright reject in the culture. Listen, there are things that we don't even need to pray about on these issues. We are to be distinct on these things. But that leads to the last thing. Do I redeem this? Now listen, I am down with Christianity that stands for more of what we are against than what we're for. I don't believe that's what Christianity is. I believe there's far more things that we can redeem than we can reject. Because newsflash, newsflash, Jesus didn't reject you. He redeemed you. And so this week, or a couple weeks ago, I went and me and Roman went and watched Black Panther, right? Wakanda forever, bro. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Movie was fire sauce, man. That thing was great. And that's fine. You can send me an email about worldliness. I won't read that. I'll forward it to Tyler. That's fine, you know? (laughs) Why do I take my kids and, and, and govern and read those stories? And we read Harry Potter. We do all that stuff. That's fine. You cannot come back next week. We love you. Find a different church. That's great. You know why? Because it's simply the story of good and evil. And so when we drove home, I asked Roman questions. See, parents, it's not difficult. It's just questions. I asked Roman, I said, tell me, what was, what was the Black Panther doing? What was he, you know? Well, he, he, he had his kingdom. And he protected his kingdom. He had special powers. And he sat on the throne. I said, that's right. He was cool, man. He did all that stuff. I said, what did the bad guy do? He said, well, the bad guy wanted to sit on the Black Panther's throne. And so he fought, he fought his kingdom. So you ask, what, that, what did the Black Panther drink? He drank that, yeah, he drank that stuff and it took his powers away. And then he was really weak. I said, Bub, Jesus has a kingdom. And Jesus has a throne. And we wanted to sit on that throne. You know what sin does to us, Bubba? Sin takes our powers away. It makes us weak. We just prayed together. Now, you can take that for what you want, but I believe that's how we can redeem the culture. I see Daniel doing this. Daniel's participating. What's the king doing? He's prayerfully considering it. He doesn't have it all figured out, but he's not compromising. Listen, I am so down on compromising, man. We have Christians who aren't even worth their weight in salt. It's like the ebb and flow. And here's what I find. You know what happens? Daniel gets promoted to prime minister of Babylon. 
He's the second in command because he doesn't bow. And if I have another group of people who think they can date this way and do stuff this way and still claim the name of Christ and wonder why God's not working in their life, it's because you've compromised, man. And listen, understand this profound truth. Those who don't compromise to the culture are always the most effective to the culture. It's just profound. Listen, if you're dating, look up here. If you're dating, listen. And if you don't compromise your dating standards, okay, and become some idiot on the internet and swipe right or do something dumb like that, listen, I promise you that you will find someone who stands out from everyone else because you didn't compromise your own truth. Those who do not compromise to the culture always become the most effective. And I saw that no more true this week. Me, like many of you, watched the funeral of Billy Graham. Love Billy. My middle name's Graham. I got a soft spot. I cried a lot this week. I love Billy. He's larger than life, man. I love some of you. I just love Billy Graham. Love him. That dude laid in honor at the Capitol Rotunda. His casket. You know how many American citizens have done that? Four. Rosa Parks, Billy Graham, and then two security guards that worked at the Capitol Rotunda and lost their life in a gunfight. It's the highest honor that a civilian can have. The president came to that dude's funeral, and they straight preached the gospel. They were like, "If you need to repent, do all that stuff. And, the, and, the, and it didn't show Trump in the camera. I thought that was really, I'm just teasing. I'm te- Are you awake? Are you good? Are you here? All right, the 11 a.m. is awake. Great. But you know what I thought was so profound? Our culture paid honor to this man who preached that hell was hot, Jesus was alive, sin was powerful, but grace could cover everything, and repentance was the only way. I love that. Listen, do you know what the culture actually wants? News to you. The culture actually wants to know if you believe it or not. And they are so attracted when people actually believe that. Do you really believe this? Are you going to live it? Are you going to tell me this? Is this true? Are you going to be like some phony baloney who's going to compromise when I argue with you and falter on these things? Holiness requires that we have to engage the culture. This is what Daniel does. God uses a holy people to influence a worldly culture. But holiness requires this last thing. Holiness requires perseverance. I'm not talking about being holy and distinct on Sunday or on community group night or at youth group. I'm talking about being holy Monday at 9 a.m., right? It's all the time. And we get this in verse 21, and oh man, I love verse 21. I've been waiting just to get to verse 21. It says this, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, do you know what's happened in the narration? We started with King Nebuchadnezzar. Now in verse 21, we're at King Cyrus. Daniel has just written and has fast-forwarded 50 years almost into the future. Daniel is 14 when he goes into exile, and when he dies, he's about 80 years old in Babylon. Do you know who this King Cyrus is? This King Cyrus is the same King Cyrus that the book of Ezra opens up. When, Ezra, when, when King Cyrus lets the people of God go who were held in captivity to go back to build the wall. That's where we get the book of Nehemiah from. And what we have is King Nebuchadnezzar, who was super powerful, who was almighty and did all of this, 
dead and in the grave. And many scholars believe that Daniel was the one who got the papers together and the freedom decree together, who gave it to King Cyrus, who then issued the order for Nehemiah to go back and build the wall. And it's the very wall in John chapter 9 through the sheep gate that we have the Son of God walking through. And it's also in the story of Christmas when we have the wise men come from the east. Do you know where they came from? They came from Babylon. How would the wise men in Babylon know that there was to be a Messiah born and that they should look in the stars to see that there would be a symbol that God placed there? It can only be because a man who lived thousands of years ago, who infiltrated the culture, who didn't compromise, but preached the gospel, sowed the seeds of the gospel. So thousands of years later, we have the wise men come and bring gifts to Jesus. All because a guy doesn't compromise. And all because a guy says, I'm going to live distinct because my God is distinct. And for those of you who think the world's going to hell in a handbasket and all of these powers and wars and rumors of wars, I encourage you with what one commentator said. Here in verse 21, Babylon, the hairy-chested macho brute of the world, has dropped with a thud into the mausoleum of history, while fragile Daniel, servant of the Most High God, stands on his feet. God uses a holy people to influence a worldly culture. As the band comes up and leads us in a time of response, I have a few questions that I want to ask you before you come and partake in communion. In regards to holiness and and what we engage to do and, and how we stand out. And the first one is this. Do you have settled biblical convictions? Families, do, do your kids know this? Are there real, not just because I said so, right? Leadership without relationships a dictatorship, all right? Your kids don't need that. But our motivation is always the gospel. So when you say, hey, Bubba, hey, sissy, the reason why I'm not going to let you go to the movies tonight and watch that with your friends. I know you don't understand it, and I know you're going to hate me for this, and that's okay. I'm your parent. I can do that. But we love Jesus. And just like back in Exodus when God saved them out of slavery, and everybody had questions, why do we live this way, and why do we eat this, and why do we do this? We do this because God saved us. And Bubba and Sissy, I love you, and that's just not for you, and we live differently. Do you have those reasons in your home? or when you're dating, or when you're handling money, or doing these things. Listen, don't wait until you're met with the confrontation to find out your conviction. Because if you wait until the confrontation, you've already lost. God has given us his word, his spirit, and his people. Do you have these convictions? The second thing is this. What act of obedience is God calling you today? What's he calling you to do today, right now? What stand do you need to make? What things, man, maybe there's a guy in here today who's so bold to take the hand of his wife or the girl that he's dating, come forward and pray and say, you know what, today, man, our home's changing today, man. We're sifting through some stuff today. This is not happening today. Or man, at work, I just, this is not, I got to stand, I got to do this today. I got to engage here. I got to let some of these things, what's God calling me to do? Don't worry about the outcome. That's not on you. Obedience is on you and gospel motivates us for that. But the last thing is this, and listen, you need to have an answer for this. How is your life holy or distinct from the world? How is your
your life different from non-Christians? How? By the way that we handle money, by the way that we love people, by the way our life for you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. And that he's called you so that you can declare the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. One guy takes a stand in the Bible and it's a domino effect. And thousands of years later, we have wise men coming to pay homage to Christ because God uses a holy people to influence a worldly culture. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we're thankful that you're holy, that you're distinct, that you're separate. For you're not like anything else. And because of that, you're deserving of all honor and glory and power. And you've made us distinct, not because we're perfect, not because we deserved it, but simply because of grace. It's your love that makes us distinct. So God, I pray for those who are stepping out in obedience today, that they would not be worried about the outcome, but that you would enable them and give them grace and favor for the obedience. God, I pray for those who are going to make a stand, who have convictions. God, I pray for those that are engaging the culture, that are going into a school system, a work environment. God, some people in this room are the only Christians in their family. God, I pray for them as they go back in and they infiltrate the culture in their family. Open up doors and opportunities. May we be distinct. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. Papa love as it is in heaven. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Just stand where you're at and come forward and partake in communion as you feel led today.